0: I Pearson and but a huge third down. Conversion you got the game the on? Side, yep. on the move down to the 24 yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't the say the score and up and waited for the past short. Drop Come out on. Of the gun. Who's winning Rifles towards the right corner? Complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score.
1: <laughs> You're listening to the original. Say the damn score podcast.
0: Part of the say the damn score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 126 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the show on the podcast app of your choice and share the podcast on your favorite social media outlet. And aloha from the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio, located in my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota, as always, at least as most of the time. This is going to be a longer introduction than normal. So I apologize in advance. I usually try to keep these short and get to the content. But bear with me, you'll understand why. First, a quick update. My unborn son has a severe condition called congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And last week I told you that we were denied by our insurance company for what added up to a $90,000 in utero surgery at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, We rescheduled the surgery from Tuesday to Thursday of that week. And we decided to go forward with it. Whatever it takes to give our son the best chance of survival, we hoped that our insurance company preferred one would come around. They didn't. They continued to deny us coverage, despite one of the best fetal surgeons in the world, uh, Dr. Rodrigo Ruano of the Mayo Clinic, submitting a plethora of evidence that this surgery was medically necessary and would dramatically increase the baby's odds of survival and also save the insurance company money long-term because babies with this surgery are expected to have much shorter stays in the NICU. But the insurance company didn't care. They just kept saying it was experimental, they would not cover it, and frankly, they made the decision that their corporate profits were more important than than our son's life I don't really know any other uh, more basic way to say it so after a few agonizing nights we went into the hospital expecting to be burdened with paying for the surgery out of pocket which who knows what that would have meant ultimately but whether it was the power of prayer good luck or a combination of both the doctor told us the morning of the operation that the hospital had decided to fund the surgery out of their charity care fund I cannot even begin to subscribe the sense of relief we felt at that moment, and from there, Sarah went into the surgery. It was successful. She was an absolute trooper through the whole process, and now it's hurry up and wait to see if the baby's lungs grow the way that they're supposed to after the surgery. Uh, We have our first lung measurement follow-up on the 16th of September, and hopefully we'll have... Really good news the next time we air this podcast. With all that in mind, after the last episode, I said I wasn't sure what the future of this podcast would hold due to the situation that I just described. And a friend of mine in the business and a regular listener to this podcast, Eric Little from West Virginia, uh, sent me a Twitter direct message offering to guest host an episode of the podcast. And that got me thinking. I really love this idea. I'll have him do one, and several of my other friends uh, can reach out to somebody that they admire and just record an interview. I'll do a short open, and we'll have some different voices involved, and we'll keep the podcast going. So that is what we are going to do for the near future. I'm not entirely sure how long. I'm going to guess five or six episodes. After that, I will reevaluate, see how long our NICU stay is going to be, whether it's severe enough that Sarah has to deliver at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. If that was the case, then she'll have to stay in Rochester afterwards and be there, which means I'll be going back and forth. But if things go well, she can deliver in Minneapolis. Uh, The hospital is 15 to 20 minutes away. And if that's the case, I'll have a little bit more free time and less... Uh, driving all over the state but uh, again it's all in flux but what i know short term is that i'm going to have a series of guest hosts and they're going to uh, help me out with the podcast i am enormously appreciative of every person who's agreed to do so the first guest host is going to be chris lewis he's the women's basketball voice of boise state and he's the subject of episode 91 of this podcast. So he's been a guest before. I've known him for a long time since I think we met five or six years ago at the National Sports Media Association convention. And since then have critiqued each other's work. We've met in person a couple other times. Really good dude. And he's an immensely talented broadcaster. If I was a betting man, I would put large sums of money On him rising really high in this industry over time. He's also one of the few African Americans in broadcasting with a Division I college play-by-play job. As I discussed briefly in episode 118 of this show, I grew up in small-town Nebraska. Which is about as undiverse of an environment as you will ever find. My entire time, K-12, through I had one black classmate in 7th and 8th grade. Otherwise, my high school classes were all completely white. With that as as the background, or maybe a bit of an excuse, I don't think I've ever in my life been maliciously racist, but I do know for certain I've been ignorant of many of the challenges that people of color and minorities face just because of lack of exposure. When the George Floyd murder happened 20 minutes from my house in Minneapolis, I really did some deep soul searching and started questioning a lot of the preconceived notions that I had about just race relations in general. When that happened, I made the decision to reach out to several people of color that I considered friends in the business and outside of the sportscasting business for that matter, And had some really difficult conversations, educated myself, exposed my ignorant points, and fully admitted that, you know what, I don't know everything, I can't relate to this, help me, and every person I reached out to took the time to do that and probably listened to some really stupid questions that if they were recorded and played back would make me look really bad. And Chris was one of those people, and I am enormously appreciative that he took the time to help me educate myself and understand many of the problems that African Americans and people of color face on a daily basis that I could just never understand through my own life experience. With that out in the open, I did not ask Chris to dive into the social injustice deep end Uh, with the voice of the WNBA's Washington Mystics and G-League's Capital City Go-Go, Megan McPeak. But when he told me that that's what he decided to do with his interview, I told him I was happy to use the limited platform that I have on this podcast, the limited platform that I have on this podcast, to hopefully help educate others in my situation or in any situation, for that matter, on the importance of change. So, if you don't like that, frankly, that's too bad. It's my podcast. I don't make money on it. If you stop listening, I'm not going to be deeply offended. I hope you don't, but I think that that this is more important than just about anything else going on in our country right now. And uh, So, I gave my platform to Chris. This is what he decided to do with it, and I fully... Support that. Without further ado, here's Chris Lewis, the voice of the Boise State women's basketball team, with Megan McPeak.
1: Chris Lewis here. I'm a play by play announcer, one of the voices of Boise State Athletics. I've been in Boise now for a good seven years. I have the introduction because this is the Chris Lewis podcast, but this is also a collaboration with the Say the Damn Score podcast, which is usually hosted by Logan Anderson. Uh, Logan had to step aside for a little bit, so I figured I would help out by filling in for just this one episode. So, again, it's kind of a combo platter of the Chris Lewis podcast and the Say the Damn Score podcast. The format of the Say the Damn Score podcast is two play-by-play announcers, uh, chopping it up, talking about the industry. So for that, I wanted to bring on Megan McPeak, who is a play-by-play announcer for the Capital City Go-Go and the Washington Mystics. Um, she's fantastic at her job on social media is one of the nicknames that I kind of have myself for her is the pulse of the WNBA. I really feel like her social media page really does a great job of capturing, uh, the, the tone and the pulse of the WNBA. And, uh, with all that's going now with how important that is to a lot of the, uh, social justice efforts that are going on. And also with uh, professional basketball and the NBA being a big part of it now also with the uh, bubble going on in Orlando. I wanted to bring on Megan for this. So, Megan, thanks for the time. I hope 2020 is at least okay for you, but 2020 is not okay for pretty much most of the population.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm happy to be here. I appreciate you having me, and, and shout out to Logan for uh, getting you to fill in uh, for his podcast and collabing with your own. So I'm excited to have a conversation. Yeah, 2020, man. I the the way I look at it is it is Jumanji plus The Hunger Games plus House of Cards plus San Andreas. That that is how I have summed up 2020 thus far.
1: It's uh, it's not exactly a box office success, though. I mean, and all those you mentioned were box <laughs> no. office successes, and this is probably the absolute disaster of a year that we could have had. This is but, straight to DVD. Yeah, this is it's been a rough one, but I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin. So you have like in January was the tragic death of Kobe, and you felt like you know that was for most years, one of the worst things that you'll ever have, considering how impactful and influential he was to basketball, to the culture, um, you know, two things that are very important to us. And you get COVID and everything that that impacts, which uh, we're both dealing with in our own ways, you dealing with it from the uh, you know, WNBA point of view, broadcasting these games, uh, that are going on in florida you 're doing the uh, studio setup for your broadcast, and the WNBA has been a really a thought leader throughout this, and I want to get to that um, and you know i 'm dealing with it from the fact that i 'm the you know play by play voice for Boise State Mountain West Conference, which is not going on right now, you know the Mountain West is one of the conferences that shut it down. Uh, unlike some of them that are actually going on, you know, still having fall sports or at least football, uh, the Mountain West is one of them, like the Big Ten and the Pac-12 that it shut it down. So, you know, for myself, it's kind of not a career change because I'm still, you know, in the broadcast element doing my best to uh, put myself in a better position when everything opens. But I had to do something that I never thought I'd ever do, and that's be a teacher like legit be a real like high school slash junior high full time with the benefits and all that. I never was introduced to that world. You would have talked to me a month ago, really like, you know, I guess a month ago and it's been about a month since I've been doing this job and it's like, yeah, I've been thrown into something that I never would have expected. So we're all adjusting to life uh, in a different way. So like, how are you handling it from both a professional aspect of it and the mental aspect of it, because let's be real, this has affected everybody in their own way.
2: Yeah, I mean, if anyone tells you it's easy, then they're like, I, I put the lie detector test on them because it's not. Um, both from a professional and from a personal standpoint, it is affecting. I think everyone's mental health um, and physical health from from different standpoints and and areas. Uh, from a pr- professional standpoint, I mean, I'm I'm thankful that. Uh, the WNBA and NBA followed, you know, each other in the sense of doing the bubble idea and trying to uh, finish the season with regards to the NBA, but then also complete an entire season, including playoffs from a WNBA standpoint. So what uh, Adam Stern and his uh, his front office and, and league executives were able to pull off and then Kathy Engelbert. um And the WNBA league office and and executives were able to pull off. um, I think they have uh, set the tone and put a stamp on how to handle uh, still having sports while also taking health and safety precautions at their highest measure. And I think they have proven to not only the country, but to the world that uh, there are ways to do it. But also to shout out to, uh, you know, the women's soccer um, league, who was the first professional league to kick things back off, um, at least in the United States, uh, with their mini tournament that they did in a similar, um, their own version of a bubble aspect. But when you actually break down the bubble and what it entails, um, and the you know the seclusion and what the players are going through, um, albeit difficult, it it has proven that it's been successful because there's been uh, to date at least zero positive tests within each bubble. Uh, I know the W has had a couple false positives uh, but were rectified immediately and were true negative results. So neither neither league W or NBA have had positive results when it comes to COVID testing Um, and I think that that shows that when you take the proper health and safety measures and you you focus on the health and safety of the athletes and those involved, you know, staff and personnel and whatnot, that you can actually get things done. Um, and I think that other leagues may start following suit.
1: And then uh, you mentioned a lot of the COVID challenges, too. And it's not just COVID. As we mentioned, the uh, 2020 has had a lot and a lot of the racial issues that have come about from this country that have been simmering for such a long time, uh, whether it's late May, early June with George Floyd, it got a little bit more to the surface and we're recording this about, you know, a little over a week after the uh, Milwaukee Bucks had their walkout their, uh I guess people dubbed it a boycott. I thought the walkout was probably the better term to use to describe what they did and what the other leagues, including the WNBA, did to kind of follow that up with, you know, bringing attention uh with the shooting of Jacob Blake. Again, the issue of you know, the inequalities and the racial problems that still exist in the United States. And that got brought to the surface, too. So you add that to you know the, all the mental uh, things that these players who are in like a secluded bubble and, uh, you know, people like you who, again, I, I didn't mention it at the top and on purpose, because I feel like for you, you've been having to explain that you're one of the few or you're the only uh, black woman who's doing play by play. At, you know, the NBA G League level or doing it for uh, an WNBA team. So I didn't want to bring that up right off the top because you've had to almost, you've kind of, in a way, maybe you've been labeled that. And I wanted to label you more as a play by play announcer before I even brought in the other stuff attached to it. But all that adds up to what these first nine months of 2020 have been like. And that's kind of where I wanted to sit with, I know you've mentioned a lot of the logistical challenges, but the mental challenges of everything that you've had to go
2: through. Yeah, and um, you know, to your point, I I appreciate you not labeling using the, the, the race or gender. So thank you for that. Um it is it's an interesting time that we are in, but uh for people that look like you and myself, this is our everyday life. Uh we don't get to turn it off and turn it on uh like the rest of society does when something happens um or something doesn't happen. This is our Everyday life, as I said. So, um, the respect that I have for, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks and what they were willing to give up, uh, in that moment, uh, it, what, whether they played the game or not, my respect for them will always be there. Um, the fact that they decided and were willing to give up a, and forfeit a playoff game, which would have then actually put the series at three two and could have made an interesting turn of events for, um a game a game six and possibly a game seven against Orlando um then again I also don't know if Orlando would have had the firepower uh to take advantage of that but we we will never know um but I think as well too and you know they deserve a lot of credit for and a lot of respect for what they did I think um a part of the conversation that gets lost you know to your point is the fact that the WNBA players and the league itself has been at the forefront of this uh, conversation of social justice and and racial injustices, uh, for years, you know, um, the day that the Bucks decided they were going to not play and were prepared to forfeit that game um, was also, you know, a few hours later, the WNBA players did the same thing, but it was led by the Washington Mystics, um, and it was also the four year. Uh, I don't want to say anniversary because that sounds like a celebration, but it was the four-year mark of the first time Colin Kaepernick uh, protested. But what people tend to forget and have forgotten is a month prior to that was actually when four players and the Minnesota Lynx uh, team first donned the Black Lives Matter shirts um, and had Minnesota police officers Uh, walk out of their game posts and refuse to work a Minnesota Lynx game because they decided to stand up for what they believed in and what they felt was right. Um, so while we give Colin Kaepernick a lot of credit, I'd like to also make sure that we give the ladies the same amount of credit because while Colin Kaepernick was blackballed from the NFL, Maya Moore decided, uh, in 2018 she was not going to play. She did the same thing, um, this season, excuse me, 2019 and this season, uh, to focus on um, Mr. Irons and his release and to see the fruits of her labor and her determination and perseverance in that situation come to, uh, you know, come to fruition and come full circle with his release uh, was a moment that I think everyone will remember. And I think now people are realizing, um, some at least, (laughs) are realizing and understanding that it was never about the flag. It was never about the troops. Uh, when it comes to Colin Kaepernick, it has never and will never be about the flag and the troops. When it comes to Black people fighting for the simple fact of human rights and civil liberties, and I think some are starting to come around to uh, his original protests and why he was why he was doing it. But we're still not uh, where we should be with that conversation.
1: Yeah, it's a lot that has happened. For people who aren't like us to at least see what is going on, and it in a way, at least around May and June, it felt like a lot of people were extremely passionate on trying to fix some of the systemic issues that have existed. And I will go there in a minute, but I first want to, you know, continue to harp on the WNBA's impact on all this, and that's one of the things that I think you've reiterated on a lot of the appearances that you've been on, and the WNBA players have been highlighting this: is that Black women are usually the last thought when everything is going on, the last thought, the last consideration, but they're always first to the fight. They're always the first one to, in Maya Moore's case, step away or the first one to don the t-shirts or the first one to make a statement. And, I think that is extremely accurate and well documented. And, uh, I think you're one of the people who reflect that as well. And that's one of the things where I said the pulse of the WNBA is on your Twitter feed because, like, uh, you're legit relentless when it comes to, uh, the printing out awareness. And I, again, admire that. You know, I'm a black man in this and, you know, in a way I get tired of sometimes. So in May and in June, when this was at its, you know, hottest, perhaps I was, definitely out there with the op-eds and the podcasts and the, you know, different ways of getting the message out. But, you know, even you sometimes feel like you're yelling at a cloud or it's, you know, it's not resonating, but for you, it almost doesn't matter. Like on your social media page, what is it now? 126 days? uh, 176. 76 which days which reminds
2: okay. me thank you for that reminder yeah you gotta uh, put that tweet out you didn't put it out put, this morning i didn't put it out today no didn't you didn't put it out today 176 I got it, I'll, days i'll do that as soon as we're done <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh with uh, brianna taylor uh since she was shot i know we're kind of joking but it's actually not a joking matter is 176 days and uh, they still haven't done anything about it they still haven't arrested Correct. the people who've done that and you've been relentless on your twitter page of putting that picture with brianna taylor's name on the back of his shirt every single day. You've been doing that, and um, that's what I'm saying. The first to the fight, you're relentless. Where does that come from? Because you know, I wish I had that in me.
2: Um, it comes. It, it's a couple of different places, Chris. One is if if I don't do it, why would anybody else? Um, if I'm not going to fight for myself um, or my fellow Black women, why would anybody else? And then it also comes from women like. Natasha Cloud, Renee Montgomery, um, and Maya Moore. And the fact that they and many other WNBA players were um, willing to give up not only a paycheck, uh, a potential at a title, um, and the love of the game to take a step away and fight for social social justices and social injustices and, and social justice reform and police reform and criminal justice reform. Um, and if it, it, the way I look at it as well, too, is for whatever reason, um, you know, to your point, and, and that's kind of something that I've continued to, to reiterate and say to people is, you know, the black woman is the last thought, but the first to the fight. And at what point are black women going to not be the first to the fight because someone else is going to stand up and fight for them? And, when you look at what some of these players are doing with, you know, taking the season off and, and fighting for it at the end of the day, either one of us could have been Brianna Taylor or George Floyd or Jacob Blake or Ahmaud Aubrey, or Sandra Bland, Atiana Jefferson. Like literally I could just keep listing black men and women, and brown men and women's names who have consistently been murdered because let's call it what it is. These are not killings. These are not shootings. These are murders. with the exception of Jacob Blake, because you know, he continues to fight for his life by, (laughs) I don't know what (laughs) you can insert there that he managed to be shot seven times in his back at literally point blank range. Like the distance from where you can see me right now on camera to my actual camera is how close, like it was an arm length point blank range. And someone or something protected him from dying. With his exception, the rest of them are flat out murderers. Branda Taylor was asleep in her bed and had eight bullets pumped into her and in her area by three police officers, and I know if you go to my Twitter feed, you see I have four names there. The one name is the man who approved and authorized the no-knock warrant. He is just as guilty and at fault for her murder as the three who pulled the trigger in that situation. And the fact that you have a person in power that looks like you as a black man, and refuses to utilize the power he has. And in that moment, I'm speaking to Daniel J. Cameron, the the power that he has as the district attorney to serve the people. Brianna Taylor is one of those people. Her family is part of the people you serve, and he has refused to take any ounce of his power and charge these men charge these officers and while you know a couple weeks ago it was it was reported that he had a conversation with her 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 family i don't care that's not justice justice is them being fired arrested and charged with murder point blank period end of sentence end of story That is partial justice, in my opinion, because the true justice comes with the trial and the conviction. Um, So when I look at situations like that and I put it in perspective, that could have been me. And I would hope. If it was. Someone would be relentless the way I am for her. She was 26 Mm -hmm. and this the even even more sad is the fact that her boyfriend was going to propose she had the entire rest of her life ahead of her and it was taken in a split second decision that could have been completely avoided and it's like if i'm not going to be relentless who is if if i'm not going to keep crying for justice who else is going to do it because You know, the sad part is Jacob Blake was one. And then this past week, there was a shooting in D.C., southeast D.C. Like, and I know there's, you know, different reports coming out with that. He had a weapon. There's body cam footage. At the end of the day, it's still a shooting involving law enforcement with a black man or woman. Like, what? it's clearly not going to stop. So how about we start fighting for the justice portion so that maybe maybe law enforcement officers might might actually think okay lethal force is my last option what do i have to do to bring this person to the ground and arrest them without incident because you do it for non-black people literally mass mass shooters let's go back to the dark night premiere you arrested him without incident and he lived to go to trial. Like, mm-hmm. why don't you give the same respect and, and civil liberty to to black people? And that's like that's that's literally all we're fighting for at this point, let alone justice. We're, we're fighting for human rights to be treated like humans and not animals.
1: You can go to Dylan Roof and you know, that how he was able to what go to was it Burger King or McDonald's? Burger, or something something like that. Fast,
2: either way they fed him.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they gave him food. <laughs> uh and uh shoot him in the back seven times. Um so it the double standard there, you've put it beautifully there. So there isn't as much for me to add except for a couple of things. Number one, you said that uh well, you know, what if you were Breonna Taylor? I mean, we have the answer to that. The answer would be the... Uh, some people would be working really hard to make it seem like your life was justified uh, ending right at that point. They would try to bring up right. something in your history that would have made you seem like a threat or seem like your life wasn't worth it. Like that would have immediately started. That's what it, but I don't know what it is. I don't know what is the worst thing you've ever done in your life, but that would somehow be brought to the surface and is a reason that people will use to defend the actions that were taken. Like that's like, it's not even a question that that's absolutely we what would have happened. It. Yeah, Your speeding tickets would have been brought. You were you were a dangerous member of the D.C. community with constantly (laughs) flying down the road. I mean, I don't know what you're doing, speeding that close to the Washington Monument like that. Like, What's going on? I mean, that's that's exactly what would happen. I mean, it would it would be uh, finding a way to make it seem like uh, your life wasn't worth uh, anything to the point where, you know, the police officers were doing the world a favor. That's Mm -hmm. usually what happens on all of these different situations. If you want to go back to Trayvon Martin, uh, if you want to go back to Mike Brown, if you just want to keep going back to the ones that I'm familiar with, and I'm only 29 years old, uh, you know, my parents have seen their examples of this throughout their 60 years of being alive. And, you know, so um, we're, Emmett Till. Yeah. Emmett Till. There you go. And
2: that was only what, like 60 plus, 60 years Mm -hmm. ago. Like that's the crazy thing. It seems Chris, when you think of you know history, and I don't know if you if you've had the chance in any travels to DC recently since the um, since the Smithsonian uh, African American Museum has been built, Uh, but they had an Emmett Till. I don't know. I I apologize. I don't know if they still have it, but they when the last time I was there, they had an Emmett Till um, exhibit. And when you think of history, it Emmett the Emmett Till uh, killing and funeral an open casket situation seems like that was in the you know early 1900s or mm-hmm. the late 1800s it was 60 years ago it was my dad my both of my parents were old enough to know what was happening with Emmett Till like i'm thinking my parents are both in their 70s they were you know anywhere beti- between excuse me you know, 10 and 15 when Emmett Till was murdered. Like that is mind blowing because you think of it and it seems so far away and so long ago. And you and I were not even, you know, a thought of Mm -hmm. or anything, but you probably have family members that remember that. And it seems, seems so far ago, but yet in reality, it was like yesterday.
1: One generation ago, is it that long? (laughs) <laughs> like, that's just, that's just straight out that's not that long. And, right. you know, we're, you know, it's almost sadly cyclical. Like, you know, we're going through. Uh, you know, heated time tension that seems very similar to some of the things we read about that, again, seems so long ago when you put it in the context of perhaps when we first heard of this, we were, you know, 13 to 18 years old. And, you know, anything that happened that was more than five years ago when you're that old seems like forever ago. But mm-hmm. now when you have the full context of history and, you know, some of the things that Black people have had to overcome, Black men, Black women, people of color in this country, what they've had to overcome, you realize that the timeline, you know, of what happened, you know, 40 to 50 years ago, like that's not that long. It's not that long at all. Right. So um, one of the things that I saw today was Kirk Herbstreit. I don't know if you saw that college game day segment uh, that he had. It was kind of weird that college game day was even on <laughs> because it's just hard to wrap my brain around college football season when the NBA playoffs are going on, that we have the start of a football season, just still makes my brain hurt. But Kirk Herbstreet said, uh, you know, he had a very um, passionate section on a segment that I think Maria Taylor was a big part of being involved in on College Game Day, which had to do with a lot of the uh, racism problems that are going on. And Kirk Herbstreet reiterated a point that has been brought up before but he said it in a passionate way where it got headlines where it's like nothing changes unless the establishment feels just as outraged as the ones being oppressed and like we've heard different people say things like that throughout time so my question to you is like why do you think it is just so hard for enough people to grasp what we're feeling and explaining and black people are constantly explaining and especially in the sports landscape because this is a sports broadcasting podcast, people within sports, the black people who play the games are out here telling you that this stuff is happening, but it just doesn't seem like it's resonating with enough people for them to really, really want to do something
2: about it. Because they want athletes to shut up and dribble and stick to sports. They don't, they don't want to see their athletes, especially their black athletes, in my opinion, as human. They want to see them as entertainment commodities and entertainment, you know, pieces. They don't want to see them as, you know, a brother, a son, a dad, a mom, a sister, an aunt. They want to they want them to continue to, uh, you know, throw throw the football far, run really fast, uh, dunk really hard block really well. They don't want them to mess up their entertainment on a at this point, you know, there's sports every single day of the week. Um but, you know, when you look at football anywhere from Wednesday to Sunday, they don't they they want to focus on the field. They don't want they don't care about what you have to say about what's happening off the field. And unless and until that begins to be taken away, you know, to Curb Street's point, uh, uh, if the establishment doesn't care, then no one's gonna care and nothing's gonna change. Um, But that doesn't mean that we don't stop fighting. And that is uh, poignant into the late, great John Lewis. Um, I got to do a uh, Q and A kind of conversation with uh, general manager and head coach of the Mystics, Mike Tebow, um, and by happenstance, he ran into Mr. Lewis and had had been able to build um, a relationship with him. He had taken the team uh, a couple of years ago to his office and and got to visit him. Um, and he had that conversation with him and like, how, you know, how do you how do you keep doing this? How do you keep fighting? Um And I'm I'm paraphrasing the answer. But it basically, you know, was to the point of (laughs) I have like, I have to keep fighting because no, who else is going to fight? Who else is going to fight? And if I want to see change, I need to keep fighting for it. And I think, you know, what is happening right now with athletes, especially the black athletes, male and female, I think, um, you know, He is looking down and he's, he's smiling that they are getting into some serious good trouble right now. And they're continuing in their own way with their own platforms. The fight that he was, he had continued to do. Cause I mean, he could eat, he, he was beaten within, you know, inches of his life. As you know, on bloody Sunday, he could have easily just, you know, I'm good. Bow out, walk away. And 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 end it right there, and just not even think about it. But he didn't. He said, "No, no, I'm I'm going to keep fighting." And he kept fighting, and he kept fighting, and he kept fighting, and he kept fighting until his literally until his his last his last breath. And I feel as though, th- like my generation, your generation, and the next generation would be doing his work and the work of that group, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, and what they did on on Bloody Sunday to get to where we are in 2020, there's been some change, you know? They, They created a lot of this change. John Lewis never thought he would see a Black president, and he lived to see it. And we may live to see the first female and black female vice president. So I think with our generation and the next, we would be doing them a disservice if we did not keep fighting to make more change so that the generation after us, they may still have to fight, but they might have to fight less than what we are doing right now. And what the generation before us had to do and the generation before them. So, you know, while you say this is, you know, the Emmett Till was a a generation removed from it. Hopefully, you know, two generations from now, they won't be a generation removed from something similar. Hmm. And they won't be a generation removed from another George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. And the only way that can happen in my opinion, is if we continue to fight to get a little bit more change so that the next generation can take it and get a little bit more change and a little bit more change.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's where the example of having more black voices in the media and especially in sports media uh, helps out with that. And also, I don't know how many different places you've lived in. I know you're you know, involved in D.C. now. Have you lived any different places uh, throughout your time as a sports broadcaster?
2: Uh, unfortunately, but fortunately, no. <laughs> I say that because, you know, from the unfortunate standpoint of not having multiple places. Um, I'm going to switch my AirPods.
1: All right, go for it. <laughs> the tricks of the trade, the one AirPod at a time. That's how you have to do it. You get the maximum value out of the AirPods doing it that way. <laughs> you got me?
2: Yes, I apologize. No, um, it's all good. So as I was saying, un- unfortunately, from the standpoint of, you know, different cities, different areas give you different um, sometimes, and usually give you different perspectives. But at the same time, I say fortunately, because that just in my, you know, now 11 year broadcasting career from graduating college to now, um, I've been able to have a little bit of longevity in each stop that I've made. Mm -hmm. Um, it hasn't, you know, been one year and gone or, you know what I mean? Um, but at the same time, Doing what I do has afforded me the ability to travel to different cities for different sporting events, um, whether it be game related or you know networking convention related. So while I haven't lived in too many places, I have visited many places and been able to be there for more than you know two or three days and get um, different experiences from different different people.
1: Yeah, I bring that up just because, again, going back to the, you know, nothing changes unless the establishment is just as outraged as the people who are being oppressed. You come to realize, like, I'm from the Philadelphia area originally, then went to school at Syracuse. And my first job at Syracuse was doing minor league baseball in Idaho Falls. And then I went from Idaho Falls to Boise, Idaho. Now, when we're talking Idaho Falls and we're talking Boise, Idaho, we're not talking about the most diverse places. We're not talking about a place that has a lot of Black people. We're talking about... uh, to a state in Idaho that is less than 1% Black. So you come to realize that, you know, the people out here don't know Black people. They don't know Black people like that. So where are they getting these experiences? Where are they getting this testimony? Where are they getting it? They're not going to seek it out on their own unless it's sports, right? A lot of these people, like the only experience that they really have with Black people and Black culture is in the sports arena. So like that's where the importance of you know the the Maya Moors, that's where it really hits because you know there's a lot of women who are fans of basketball out here and know Maya Moore. And now they're getting the experience of what black people go through through what she cares about. And that's, you know, whether it's you know LeBron James in the NBA or any of the other players, Chris Paul who have been big voices in this. Again, a lot of what people around here in Idaho get their experience about Black people are from either professional sports or college sports for the local team, which is Boise State, which gets into a whole nother problem of, you know, very often the college athlete isn't really allowed to tell their truth because of the system that's in place with them being in a largely white town with the coach that's white with uh, the power dynamics with they are, where they don't have any power. They don't make any money. They don't really have any real rights, uh, you know, as a student athlete. So there is the inherent problem that comes with that. So if the college athlete isn't really empowered to tell their truth, then it's really up to the professional athlete. That's the only people that the largely white area of Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Falls and the rest of the state are going to hear all this. So that's why when they, in a way, walk out or withhold their work or withhold their services, it does matter even if they are getting a lot of the heat and you hear a lot of the noise from the other side of, Oh, what is, what difference is this making? Or, you know, just stick to sports. Well, it does resonate. It does matter. And that's one of the things that I did learn from just being on the radio here uh, for a good six years is that, you know, I did provide a perspective to people that didn't they didn't get. And these were people who were like 50 and 60 years old. And I was telling them stuff that they just never thought or was thinking about things in a way that these 50, 60 year old people who've lived in Idaho all their lives never considered that. So that's why in a way our role is kind of important too. And um, you know, the athletes in sports, their job's really important to continue down the road of being relentless, which again, I envy you because you're right up there with being relentless.
2: I appreciate that. Yeah. It's um, it also, you know, to your point of the college athletes not having too much power um, at the end of the day, they truly do have power because, you know, just because their coach or administration in their college doesn't want them to tell their story, social media is their platform. And that is their power. All they have to do is fire off some tweets about who, you know, their story. Yeah, but you that see what happens when that
1: happened. Like, you know, we saw with Oklahoma State and Mike Gundy, like when that happens, it becomes a huge deal and the guy has to like take down the tweet like to stay on the to feel like he can stay on the team. He has to take down the tweet and then go into uh retreat mode and everything's great here in Stillwater, you know, like it's still while they have the power to do it, they really don't have the power in a way.
2: But all that does, Chris, it starts the conversation because that prompted people, Mm. you know, major networks, major outlets to say, hmm, if this is how he feels, maybe we should pay attention. Because if he didn't send off those tweets, no one would have known. No one would have paid attention and no one would have put a spotlight on it. And we would not have seen that cringeworthy interview and apology. I'm air quoting for your listeners yep. um that we did see and while you know he had to retreat and give that fake everything's great here cuz let's be real we know what the truth was <laughs> the truth was what he said first in in twitter in 140 characters um, at the end of the day he forced the hand of the coach to either have his back or show his true colors because then while you know the transfer situation in college sports is a disaster as is he then had a little bit of power in his corner because he could have easily been like i'm not playing he could have he could have staged his own you know walkout or boycott and being a um you know being an important part of that program the losses then reflect on the coach if they were to turn around and consistently lose without him on the field, then the conversation is, should he be coaching? Is he on the hot seat? Now the player has a little bit of power because he's forced the hand of the coach to make a decision. Are you going to have my back in my feelings? And are we going to change the culture or are you going to show your true colors? And not only are you going to potentially lose me on the field, but you're now going to potentially lose recruits. Mm -hmm and i think that's where some some of the college athletes can take some of the control back but until again until the 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 powers that be change their mindset of you know no longer looking at these athletes as um you know commodities and pawns and actually looks at them as humans like they are um it's going to be tough but i think we're starting to see a minimal shift in college sports um to that degree that they're starting to look and realize that these these players actually have more power than we realize because they have the backing of former college athletes who are now talking in sports, television and radio, having their backs mm-hmm. on major networks. That's not good for. You know the shield of the NCAA. Let's be real. Anything that it, anything that affects the shield, whether it be the NFL, the NCAA, the NBA, Major League Baseball, any, um, any sport, if it affects the shield, they get nervous. There's a reason Colin Kaepernick was blackballed because what he was doing was affecting the shield mm-hmm. because more players were having his back. More, you know, we consistently still see players that have his back. When the bottom line starts to be affected, that's when they start paying attention. And I think that was that was a, what we witnessed with um the Milwaukee Bucks and the NBA and you know the Washington Mystics and the WNBA. That could have affected them greatly. It would have also affected the players' bank accounts, yes, but they got the attention that they were looking for because what they were doing within the confines of what they said of utilizing their platform in their opinion and to their feelings, it didn't work because another black man was shot. So they needed to raise the bar and say, okay, that didn't work. What can we do? And then they got into action. Okay. This is what we want from our own, from, from ownership. We don't want you to just talk the talk. We want you to walk the walk. And that's where we started to see the wheels turn and things start to shift. And then, you know, the so- Social Justice Council and the WNBA has been a big thing they've been focusing on. But now we also see it in the NBA and and what the owners are said they were going to do and, and try to put into action. If you affect the bottom line and the bottom dollar and someone's pocketbooks, they then start to listen a little bit more.
1: <laughs> yeah. Two things that you mentioned in that answer that I wanted to build off of. Number one, like you brought up Colin Kaepernick, right? He had a lot of support with Black people, right? There was a lot of Black people who were like, he
2: had Nike on yeah, his side.
1: Exactly. There was a lot that he had on his side. But it's funny when this thing – well, not really funny. But when it happened four years ago, uh, you had the group of Black people who were definitely in support and were, like, finally somebody is taking these issues seriously enough to bring them to the table to the point where it's, like, directly in your face. And then you had a right. group of people who – you know, largely the white people who were like, I don't want this anywhere near my product of the NFL. Well, which side did the league take? They took the side to make the white people feel comfortable not the black people feel comfortable. So it's like when the language of like black lives matter and people you know, get all up in arms about the language with that. But like, that's an example of, well, why didn't the black lives matter in that instance? Why did the only the white lives or the pe- feelings of white people matter when it came to that? I mean, there was, you know, you had the feelings of black people on one side and the feelings of white people on the other and the NFL just bent over backwards to placate the feelings of the white people but there's Black people involved too and you didn't care about their feelings.
2: Why is that? Oh, well, that's because the, the just the simple term Black Lives Matter is, is and has become one of the most divisive terms that we may have seen. And when I say it, you know, I say it from the standpoint of it has nothing to do with the organization of Black Lives Matter. It is absolutely, for me, nothing to do with that organization for me it's the sim- i'm simply stating black lives matter it's no different than when people try to say you know like chick-fil-a's commercials mm-hmm. eat more chicken with cow <laughs> yes to me yeah. <laughs> that's how i use black lives matter It has nothing to do with the organization and what they do or do not do, what they may or may not stand for. Literally nothing to do. And some people forget that and tie the two together because of the term being Black Lives like, hey, like Black Lives Matter. They just immediately think you're talking about the organization and you're not talking about the simple fact that Chris Lewis as a Black man, his life matters like that's when i say it that's what i'm talking about and i think there needs to be a a shift when it comes to that term because it's so divisive immediately when you say it whether it's on social media on television in the public eye no matter where it is the moment you say black lives matter those three words put together people immediately assume that you are talking about the organization they don't for whatever reason seem to think that you're actually talking about a black person's life mattering. But then you also have the group, well, oh, all lives matter. Guess what? Black All lives matter will not matter until black lives matter, brown lives matter, and you can take it up north to Canada until indigenous lives matter. And, you know, people get so mad when you say black lives matter and then they hit you with, well, what about, you know, why not all lives matter? Guess what? Right now, right now, black lives no one cares for whatever reason about them. So right now, the fight and the focus is on making Black Lives Matter. And it's, it's so in, interesting to see how divisive that term has become with everything going on.
1: Let's be real. If any term got any momentum that had to do with ending racism and having black people feel more equal, there would be backlash to it, no matter what you named it. So like, it's just the latest example of black lives matter being that you could have named, named it anything else. If it mm-hmm. gained momentum, there would be a whole group of people trying to spin it into something that is threatening to the establishment, threatening to a lot of white people. So it, To do that as in a way a scare tactic like that's in the playbook that would absolutely be the case if you named it uh, black lives are cool it would be the same thing like it would just be you would find a way or there would be people who'd find a way to turn it into whatever they want to turn it into the oldest trick in the book. Then the other right. part, then your answer, a couple of answers ago that I wanted to bring out a little bit further was, you know, you mentioned the NCAA, they get scared when a lot of the black voices out there start to expose a lot of the hypocrisy that's attached. And that comes from actually having black voices. Now, a lot of them are former athletes, but um one of the topics of conversation, especially in May and June, that we participated in quite a bit is the lack of Black play-by-play announcers. Really, there is only a couple of Black women who are play-by-play announcers, and you make up a big part of that group. And for Black men who weren't players, there isn't as many uh, who are in the broadcast booth as well. So... I'm just wondering what it's been like for you to just, because I have the same experience too. We, there's been features written about you uh, since May. There's been features written about me since May with this. Uh, we've all had conversations with people probably in the business who we hadn't heard from in a long time. Uh, people checking in on us to see how we're doing. So they, I'm wondering how you've dealt with all that.
2: I mean, I've been very, uh, I've been very candid and honest with people (laughs) um, who check in. But before I even begin that conversation, I always ask, what answer do you want? Do you want me to be politically correct with you right now? Or do you want me to be honest and candid and not be Megan McPeak the broadcaster? Which, which Megan do you want? Do you want Megan McPeak the broadcaster? Or do you want Megan McPeak born? A black interracial mixed kid like, which one do you want because that will dictate how i'm going to answer you um and the conversations i've had luckily they've gone with the, with the latter so they want the candid answer from me being born an interracial um female but in society's eyes i'm a black woman because let's be real I could be mixed with eight different ethnicities, but because I have a darker skin complexion than those of our white counterparts, the the white part of society automatically deems me as being black. Um, so, I've been able to have very honest and candid conversations. And if people were, you know, calling to check on me or texting to check on me to have these conversations and wanted me to be politically correct. they've they shown their true colors to me and those numbers get blocked point blank period. Like there's no other way around it. Like you get blocked. There's Mm -hmm. no, there, what, why do I need you in my life in any capacity? So I, um, luckily haven't had to block many people.
1: That's great. But I mean, there is the whole, you know, I think I've seen a feature that you were involved with, with the undefeated. I think Mark Spears, uh, so spoke to you with one, right? Am I right on that? I thought mm-hmm. I saw it in there. There mm-hmm. was one that was uh, from a publication in Canada. I had one that was uh, a part of the Penn News. There was one that was also in the Ringer um, that I spoke to for a story there. So like in May and June, especially, it felt like there was a genuine interest of making this business, making this space play by play, especially more of a diverse group and having groups go out of their way to perhaps maybe look to see what they could do to help the Mega McPeak or the next Mega McPeak or help Chris Lewis or the next Chris Lewis or somebody like Chris Lewis. Now that we're in September, do you still believe that to be the case within the industry or like what, what are your feelings of the future of what this picture, what this space will look like 10 years from now?
2: i am more optimistic right now than i may have been a few months ago or even a couple of years ago um because again you know change can't happen without a little bit of good trouble um and change can't happen without it being brought to the attention of the public and being put on the forefront so I'm optimistic that things will start to look different in the next, um, you know, whether it's a few months, a couple of years, few years, whatever it may be. I am optimistic that those who covered the league, whether it be in TV, radio or print um, or online print, <laughs> it will resemble and reflect more of what the athletes look like because the one of the hardest things is trying to tell an athlete's story but you don't represent them and you don't reflect them and that's not necessarily meaning you are cut from the same cloth or grew up in the same neighborhood it could simply be the fact that our skin colors are of the same shade category in the paint box and unless we have more people that reflect the same you know shade portion of that crayon box or paint box that cover the teams and cover the athletes. We're not going to get the real true stories from the athletes. Um, And I am optimistic that that is going to begin to change.
1: Yeah. Where I'm at on this is that I would think that if the race problems in this country were like the primary Only issue that was going on, I would be a lot more optimistic. But what I tend to learn is that people are much more willing to take those leaps when their financial situation is much more secure, and that's the thing that we're finding out right now. If you look at a lot of the people who have been let go, or a lot of the people who have, you know, on it have been cut because of COVID-related reasons with the economy and the lack of uh, advertising in all these spaces, it's gonna hurt hurt a lot of you know black people in this and Mm -hmm. and you can see a lot of the black women are also affected by this as well and that's what the that's what the statistics tell you and that's what my observations are so like my whole thing is okay well we really get progress when we're seeing the trend go up in a situation when the economy isn't great and right now Mm -hmm. we're not necessarily seeing the type of growth that maybe when we recover from covid and Uh, the industries get a lot more money. Teams have a lot more money. Maybe there will be an increase of people who look like us getting more opportunities with, you know, the, the Learfields if it's the college space of the world or the, uh, specific teams if we're talking about professional sports. But I, I guess I kind of need to see what happens when that bounces back because right now I'm actually not optimistic because everybody seems to be going as minimalistic as possible uh, when it comes to the broadcast space. So right. we kind of need it to to grow back to what it was before COVID to really get a, a test of this. But maybe I'm not as optimistic as you because I have a feeling once you realize what you can do with less – why would a team go out and spend more unless we have another crisis moment like we had in may and june
2: yeah and and that's where that's where i'm optimistic is i'm thinking from the standpoint of when 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 sports gets to their new normalcy whatever that may be i'm not thinking like right in this immediate future i'm thinking okay once we can deal with covid and get sports to its new normalcy whatever that may be Then maybe we'll start to see a shift in the coverage. Um, so that's where my optimism comes from because with everything going on and all the pandemics, yes, I mean, multiple pandemics, uh, going on right now. It, I have to have some sort of optimism, uh, for life right now. And, and that's, that's one of them for me is when, when everything is said and done and we can get COVID under control that will be able to return to the new normal of sports and that's when the coverage will start to more more reflect the athletes
1: mmm I'm looking forward to your future in a way because I think if you want that NBA step is your next step, and I'm not exactly sure what you want for your future, but I definitely see you. Uh, if that's something that you want, is that's a goal that you want to be somebody who's out here calling NBA games, I mean, I see that as something that is absolutely, but that has to come from the opportunities opening and we need to have the movement and for us to have the movement, we probably need to be in a better economic situation. But like, that's what... One of the things that I'm excited for is to see the next steps for you because I really do think that uh, that is something that is going to happen sooner rather than later for you specifically.
2: I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting. That that and that's the, the interesting thing about um, professional sports is there's you know you look at the the NFL, the NBA, and the WNBA. So there's what 32 teams in the NFL. There is 30 teams in the NBA. There's 12 teams in the W. Each of those has a TV and then, you know, each has radio, specifically NBA and NFL. Um, so there's under 300 jobs right there. Once you get one, you hold on until, <laughs> yes. until it's time <laughs> to Scratch ride off into the sunset. Um, <laughs> no. like Why isn't there they WNBA
1: radio? It. Like that was one of the things I was looking at the other day. WNBA doesn't really have, like, I think only two teams have radio contracts. And outside of that yeah.
2: um i I honestly couldn't tell you why that is um I think it's just what the i think it's more on the stations and the teams um and as well too. you know it's tough to um it's tough to do the t v call on radio because you need much more. Um, as you know you much more descriptive
1: but there's announcers um, who want to do radio Mm -hmm. for games hello that's me i would happily love to do a radio of a wnba team
2: and I, i also don't know if it's um if it's something that you have to get approved with the league and whatnot i don't know the intricacies when it comes to doing wnba games on radio um and and whatnot so that yeah i mean it would be great to see all 12 teams have a radio broadcast as an option because, you know, not everybody wants to watch on TV or can watch on TV. Um, You know, cable can be expensive. Not everyone has the necessary economic um, situation to afford. Whereas, you know, radio, as long as you've got internet, you can pull up the live stream um, to most radio stations and listen. So um, that could be something that they're talking about for, you know, future. um, Once we figure out what the 2021 season looks like, um, that could be something that comes down the, down the road. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but, uh, you know, it would be great to see all 12 teams at some point have a radio broadcast.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that that would be something that should be there already. Like Seattle, I'm like, how does a Seattle storm not have a radio broadcast? Like they're, they're really popular in Seattle. I'm sure a station would love to, to have their games. I mean, that just seemed like a natural thing that they would have. And they didn't yeah. have a, a radio broadcasting, which I thought was crazy.
2: Yeah it could also be the timing of if there's another sport that would be on the same station that that t- that the W team would be on and if that that is the conflict of not having it but again I'm I'm not really yeah. sure what uh what goes into the decision
1: and then one of the things that this podcast is known for this podcast being say the damn score podcast. And I kind of wanted to finish up with this and I appreciate the time Megan going through a lot of different things. Um, but they, one of the, the staples of it is your broadcast nightmare story. So like a broadcast that went completely wrong, equipment related, maybe they changed the game time on you. Um, it was one of the things for me, it was um, like just a bathroom story of just like, you know, you really had to go. And you were for me, it was the second half of the Mountain West tournament last year or actually two years ago in Vegas. Like the whole second half, I was calling the action with my mouth, but thinking the whole time of, all right, how am I going to get out of this situation uh, before I somehow got to use the bathroom? And that was a disaster of a broadcast, but I somehow got through it. It was a miracle. <laughs>
2: Oh, if that's your only disaster, you've got a long way ahead of you. Um, I have had, I mean, you know, you miss, I miss Misidentifying mis- mis- people is always embarrassing. Um, I've done that and um, getting, trying to deal with delays w- for whatever reason, the delay, whether it's an injury delay that, you know, mm. extends. Um, a few years ago I was doing the Duty League showcase and we, I, I somehow got stuck with every single delay that happened in a game. Um and it wasn't so much that it was a disaster, it's just that it um the pressure's on because you have to fill. You you know the the broadcast only has, the producer only has so many commercial breaks they can go to. Um and once you use all those up, you got to figure out how to do it on the fly. So I wouldn't necessarily say disaster, but I think for me because I, I, I pride myself on, on professionalism and always, you know, making sure I, I'm on point is misidentifying um people and having to turn around and apologize. But I've also realized that it's not embarrassing anymore. Um Because, you know, even those at the NFL level, NBA, NHL level, they do it, but it's also just, you know, correcting in the moment and and going with it. But Yeah, misidentified whether it's players or people in the crowd, um, those are never fun because you know how social media is. They'll find it.
1: They'll find it. They
2: run with it, and it'll be bad.
1: My whole thing with misidentifying um, people—that's really bad. And of course, like you don't want to do it. But uh, when—and I love Marv Albert. I love Marv Albert, legend, absolute legend. But, like, that series a couple years ago with the Cavs and the Pacers, he could not keep track. Darren Collinson for Victor Oladipo. And it was just the – it was the craziest thing, man. And, like, it, I, every single time he, he got the wrong one. And I was almost impressed. Like, how could he mix them up as much? But to be fair, at they were, some were pretty dark-skinned like and he's... they were pretty the same height. So, like, I, I could kind of see but it. At, the,
2: at some point – you you know you wonder if he had to keep it going just <laughs> yeah. to keep it going um and maybe kept it going just because like well I've already mixed them up like five times I might as well yeah. just keep this keep, keep, keep this going. ball rolling
1: <laughs> keep the bit going it's a bit at this point uh and then my last question uh cuz that was basically Logan's last question my last question is I heard you were pretty good at basketball back in the day so what's your play style who did you play like uh what's your biggest moments like you know, what what's your basketball style
2: Ooh, I would like, ah, my basketball style. Dang. I didn't know you were going to ask this question. <laughs> um, Okay. So I'll give you a WNBA player and an NBA player. Um, not as flashy, just the way they, like the way they play and see the floor. Um, Cause I am in no way saying that I am them um but chelsea gray meets chauncey billups okay <clears throat> so um i you know chelsea gray like she's a bucket but at the same time she also puts her team first and that's how i was my my college coach hated it um because i was always the i was always the type of point guard that like i'm okay I got an open jump shot but you know let me get my let me get my bigger you know a double double tonight Mm -hmm. um and my coach hated me (laughs) passing up shots uh it wasn't until I think like my senior year that I was she was just like if you don't shoot I'm benching you and I was like fine um and then uh Chauncey Billups in the way that he could defend as a point guard Mm -hmm. but also too I loved going down into the post because I grew up so I grew up from the age of I had a growth spurt really, really early. So I was like five, five, three, five, four, five, five, when I was like 10. So like everybody looked at me like, oh, she's going to be tall. (laughs) And then I got to five, six and I never grew again. Like I've been, I've been five, I've been five, six since I was in the eighth grade and have, but because I was so tall when I was younger, I, when I played on like my AAU teams, Mm. I had to be a post because I was one of the taller kids on the team. So I have literally played from, you know, my young days until up until college, I've played every position. So I was one of those point guards and combo guards that I knew how to post you up and take advantage of point guards that would defend me because they don't really know how to defend people Mm. in the post. So I would always catch them like with quick moves and stuff like that. Um, So yeah, I would say a mix of Chelsea Gray and Chauncey Phillips, but not as flashy (laughs) as they are. Again, I am not saying that I am them. They are in a whole world of their own.
1: All right. So a couple of things. Number one, I was like the opposite when I played. I was really short whenever I played basketball as a kid. And like my sophomore year of high school, after that, I stopped playing. And that's when I hit my growth spurt to grow to be like 6'2", 6'3". I actually have the guard skills. Now, you know, 6'2", 6'3", isn't tall when you're talking professional basketball, but if you're playing pickup, you're probably, you know, at least one of the medium-sized to taller people. So, like, I had those guard skills as then somebody who got bigger. So what's more valuable, to be the tall person early so you can get the big man skills or the big skills, or is it more valuable to be the short player and then suddenly grow and then have those guard skills? Like they're, they're both kind of, it's a different problem. I think
2: both. Um, I think both because really it comes down to the coaching and the development staff to figure out how to, how to take advantage of your skills. Mm -hmm. But like at the same time, my AAU coach, every single player on our team had to know how to handle the ball. So I, I was a big with handles, Mm -hmm. which when I had to transition into playing on the perimeter that I was like, okay, so I, I know how to dribble already. Like I'm good um so i think i think it really it depends on how you want to play and if you do want to play professionally at a high level how you want to take advantage of the skill set you have but then also too how that fits into the system that's being run and the players around you because like you look at Chelsea Gray and and Chauncey Billups their particular skill sets work with specific skill sets around them um, and that's why they ha- they are and were, you know, with Chauncey being retired and Chelsea still, you know, giving people the business currently. That's why they've been so successful and had been so successful. That's why both of them have the championship pedigree. Like, it's mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, I would love to say that I I, I had the skill set of Diana Taurasi, but I don't think anybody but <laughs> Diana Taurasi has the skill set of Diana Taurasi. The GOAT. The goat. And um, I think... She could give any Hooper, gender aside, the the, the absolute business right now, <laughs> and she's in her like seventeenth season. Like it's insane.
1: Well, it's not saying
2: the records that she's putting up right now
1: <laughs> yeah you're talking about the skills well you got the broadcasting skills to certainly move on up looking forward to seeing your next steps that I know won't be too long before again if you want that NBA gig which I don't know what your future goals are but um I can definitely see that being a thing for you coming up in the near future so with that in mind where can we find the stuff you do on um, your social media that we've promoted throughout a lot of this uh, podcast where can we find you
2: Um at Megan McPeak on Twitter, M E G H A N for the listeners. I have an H in my name. It's the proper way to spell it. Don't get it twisted. Um at Megan McPeak, one word, and then Instagram if you want to follow me as well, too. Same handle, but put a period between first and last name.
1: I gotta get up on that Instagram. I don't follow you on Instagram. So I gotta make sure I'm slipping. I'm slipping. Gotta make sure I give you a follow there. Megan, appreciate the time. Thanks as always.
2: I'm not as, I'm not. Chris, I appreciate you for having me. Thank you. Shout out Logan again one time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. And a special thanks to Chris Lewis, the voice of the Boise State Broncos women's basketball team, and Megan McPeak of the Washington Mystics and Capital City Go-Go. Make sure to remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedampscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, Apple podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of this show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.